That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Case of the Missing Migrants. Written by Matthew Chitwood for the Institute of Current World Affairs. Published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, China Channel. Read for you by Matthew Chitwood. The blood gushed out, dark at first, like vintage burgundy. Each labored breath cut off its flow until another squeal, piercing, terrifying, forced out another stream of blood. It spilled into an aluminum bowl, now scarlet and frothy. That was an educational moment for me, and for a wide-eyed three-year-old next to me. Moments earlier, the boy's father, Li Rugui, had led the screeching pig from its pin, yanking on its ear. Another man gripped its other ear, and two tugged at its tail. The hog was to be the centerpiece of Li's Sha Zhu Fan, a pig slaughtering feast, and the doomed animal made its discomfort clear. Four more men flanked the animal and flopped it to the ground, each restraining a leg. Li Rugui wrapped a rope around its mouth, holding it shut tight as his butcher friend plunged a six-inch blade into its throat. The blood flowed. As it began to congeal, Lee scooped out a fingerful and dropped it into his mouth. He smiled at me, a bloody grin, and gestured for me to try. I politely declined. The second pig went like the first. Our feast had all the elements of a successful Chinese New Year celebration. Very fresh meat, and lots of it. Card games of scoop the pickled vegetables, a sort of three-card blackjack that lasted all afternoon, and home-brewed corn liquor, baijiu, that flowed well past midnight. The entire community of this tiny village was in attendance, from young children learning where meat comes from, to members of China's lost generation, who easily remember having no meat at all. Tea farmers, construction workers, party officials, teachers, mothers, everyone was there. Everyone, that is, except one conspicuously absent demographic. Migrant workers. Chuanyun, the phenomenon of workers and students returning to their hometowns for Chinese New Year, is widely reported to be the largest migration in human history. Indeed, between the visiting of hometowns or vacationing, the Ministry of Transport expected almost 3 billion trips to be made over the 40 days spanning Chinese New Year. That's the equivalent of the populations of Africa, Europe, and the Americas, all boarding planes, trains, and automobiles. Of those, almost 390 million travelers are migrant workers who venture into bigger cities during the year to find jobs at construction sites, in factories, or anywhere else available. For many, Chinese New Year presents the only chance to return home to see aging parents or even to reunite with their own young children who are often left behind with grandparents.
But in Bangdong, a village of 350 people in rural southwestern China, migrant workers were largely absent from the celebrations. It's not that they didn't come back to the village. It's that they never left. As I would find out, it wasn't always so. Just 10 years ago, quote, going out to work, or chu chu, was still the norm. Whether because of economic necessity, youthful curiosity, or both, most, if not all, Bangdong's young people would join the migrant workforce. But not anymore. Economic growth and a national strategy for rural revitalization are well at work here, transforming their very way and quality of life. Li Rugui is an unlikely economics teacher. Solidly built from years of manual labor, he is an intimidating figure. A scar stretches from his left eyebrow down to his jawbone. Remaining evidence of a drunken motorcycle accident and 200 stitches. On his left forearm, the characters for Bruce Lee, Li Xiaolong, are scrawled in fading blue, both alcohol-induced and self-inflicted. In 1992, Li Rugui quit eighth grade in order to help support his family. After several years of building dirt roads and logging in the region with his father for one dollar per day, he heard about opportunities across the border in Myanmar. With an eye for adventure, he joined the ranks of the migrant workforce and headed west with a village buddy. The opportunity, as it turned out, was opium. In the mid-90s, Myanmar, part of the notorious Golden Triangle, was producing most of the world's heroin, a derivative of opium. Although Lee had no work documents, both border and drug enforcement were lax at the time. He told me, On one side of the road, you're in China. Just walk across and you're in Myanmar, standing in the middle of poppy fields. Lee and his buddy worked their first year scoring poppy pods and extracting the dried gum for drug production. But Lee did not enjoy the work and saw a better opportunity in construction. Returning home for Chinese New Year, he convinced his father to travel to Myanmar with him and his buddy. They worked for two years together, developing construction projects for local Burmese. But things would not end well for any of them. A resurgence of civil war in 2001 wreaked havoc on the country, and as Li Rugui and his father rushed back to safety in China, their Burmese bosses refused to settle their debts. Father and son returned from their two years of labor empty-handed. They fared better than Li's buddy, however, who had become hooked on opium, the beginning of a vicious cycle that would tragically end in his death. Father and son returned to what they knew, manual labor in the Bangdong region, making around $2 for a very long day. But soon, the allure of money and adventure in the city captivated Li Rugui. The only way to get a job in the big city is through connections, he explained to me. So when he heard of some locals heading to Beijing after Chinese New Year, he decided to throw in his lot with them. As Li recounted the story, his voice hinted at the excitement of those days, the sense of independence and self-discovery. We sat outside at a massive table built from a solid cross-section of tree, something suitable for a Last Supper portrait. He brewed tea from his 2017 spring crop, which we sipped from delicate celadon teacups the size of small chicken eggs, 
clearly no threat to Li's masculinity. Each of the next six years, Li Rugui worked construction in Beijing, joining the Chuanyun back to the village for Chinese New Year. With him came any savings which he would spend on housing renovations for his parents, blowing the rest on eating, drinking, gambling, and giving out hongbao, or red envelopes filled with money, that were a measure of status within the community. During that time, he became an expert in reinforced concrete and worked on the China World Trade Center and the National Tennis Center for the 2008 Olympics. During his last years of, quote, going out, he would recruit and manage Bangdong work teams on his construction projects and pull in almost $20,000 for the year, an astronomical sum for a kid from the village. However, though the money was good, Li was eager to find a different way of life. Chu tai ku, he said. Migrant labor is bitter work. Moreover, he was now married with a daughter, so he wanted to be home. Bangdong economics finally made that possible. China's increasingly expendable incomes have led to increasing, often irrational, tea prices. Chinese tea connoisseurs can differentiate between types, regions, years, and even seasonal harvests. Similar to fine wines and aged whiskies, some teas are said to improve with time, so collectors have begun to stock up, some to enjoy, some to invest, and some to egregiously display their wealth, paying as much as $50,000 for a single kilogram. But for most in China, regardless of socioeconomic class, tea remains a routine rather than an investment vehicle. Much like the daily Starbucks might be in a typical American's basket of goods, tea is a Chinese staple. Demand is high and growing, and increasingly sophisticated markets are responding. Just 10 years ago, your average Bangdong tea sold for $5 per kilogram. Today, the going price is over $50, and tea experts don't foresee the market topping out anytime soon. Given the demand, almost every villager in Bangdong has converted all their acreage to tea trees within the last three to four years. Not only do they benefit from high tea prices, but they also qualify for government subsidies under the Grain for Green project, a campaign to turn low-yielding farmland back into forests and pasture. That engages virtually the entire Bangdong populace in tea production, with roughly 90% picking and 10% in processing and sales. Trickle-down economics has radically changed livelihoods in Bangdong. Work is suddenly regularly available and at a decent wage, $8 to $30 per day depending on season and ability. And because of the increase in local disposable income, when it's not harvest season, other odd jobs abound. People are renovating homes, building tea processing structures, opening convenience stores, and exploring other ways to invest their newfound wealth. economics also means Bangdong families can stay together. One young married couple met 10 years ago as migrant laborers in northern Yunnan. Conditions then weren't like they are now, the wife said. I graduated from ninth grade and then had to go out to work. Now, thanks to tea, a girl can stay enrolled through high school then get married and stay in the village. And there's work in the village for her husband, too, so they don't need to live apart anymore. As she spoke, 
I sensed she was thinking of her two daughters. Similarly, the Rugue can look after his aging parents, his middle schooler need not quit school to help support the family, and his three-year-old son, who watched the pig slaughtering, has a father figure at home throughout the year. Bangdong tea is good for families. But the benefits come with risks. Are market distortions inflating prices? Are the eager villagers going to flood the market? What if prices crash? One villager confessed he had been unable to find buyers for 10 cases of last year's tea that were still sitting in his house, supposedly worth about $500 each. He reassured me, though. Even with leftovers, he said, I've made more this year on tea than when we grew only corn and rice. But Mayor Zhu Hong cautioned me over one of our fireside chats. Tea won't fill your belly, he said. If prices drop to what they were before, for whatever reason, people will be jumping off buildings and drinking pesticide. That's why the mayor is working on diversifying his portfolio into coffee production and tourism. And he hopes others will watch and follow suit. I once painted my house bright blue as an experiment, he recalled. Pretty soon, many of the houses in the village were blue. I can't just tell people what to do, but if they see a good idea, they'll copy it. I want to give them a model. There is no model of development in Jiangjiapu. There aren't even road signs. The village sits not far off a single lane, sometimes paved, sometimes dirt road, that winds the dozen miles from Bangdong. We pass a half-finished concrete house, still spewing rebar, and turn up an unmarked lane just wide enough for a small car. Winding up the hillside, past tea terraces and bamboo groves, we come upon Jiangjiapu, population 200. Houses are noticeably smaller here than in Bangdong. One story compared to two or three. And whereas in Bangdong families tend to build on top of their old raised houses, in Jiangjiapu, if families can even afford renovations, they incorporate the old mud and wood structures into their new homes. Today, I've come in search of the migrant workers who don't exist in Bangdong anymore. Mayor Zhu Hong's cousin, who used to work on construction crews in Shanghai with buddies from this village, let me tag along to pay respects at Chinese New Year. We park on a side road and walk past a crew of men atop bamboo scaffolding. They stop their brick lane as their curious stares and wide grins follow us up the road. Finally, one extroverted soul howls, Hello? His tone rising at the end, almost as a question. The crew howls with laughter, chiding the man for making a fool of himself. I respond with a wave and a warm Chinese style, Hello? The guttural H starting deep in my throat. I guess foreigners don't come to Jiangjiapu much. We visit several friends along the way, and eventually stop at Liu Baohong's house. Baohong's name, given by his grandfather, means precious red, a political reference common in the previous generation. The youngest of three brothers, he was also the most expensive. His parents violated China's family planning restrictions and had to pay a fine of roughly $200, a significant sum in those days. From working in cities, Baohong speaks standard Mandarin, so I no longer have to strain to understand. 
Our tea in Jiangjiapu is not good like Bangdong tea, he tells me over a fresh steep of his family's crop. I am disgusted by my undiscerning palate. The tea tastes great to me. It's colder here, and the soil is not as good, he explains. So our tea is more bitter. It sells for a tenth the price of Bangdong tea. The best of Jiangjiapu tea sells for a mere $5 per kilogram, compared to $50 or more in Bangdong. They must have to basically give away their bad stuff, I think, as I look down at my free cup of tea. A large garbage bag of tea slumps in the corner. As we chat, Bao Hong's mother returns from the fields with a bamboo basket full of turnips on her back. His father busies himself in the courtyard chopping up vegetation to feed the livestock. Both are dark brown, their faces weathered by the sun. Bao Hong continues talking about work in the region. My parents are still healthy, so they raise livestock and grow vegetables that we mostly eat ourselves. Our tea and corn aren't really enough to make a living, so most everyone here who can go out does. I work rebar in Linsong. That's how I got this, he says, pointing at his bandaged foot. And my wife works at a cafe in Kunming. Our three-year-old stays with my wife's parents. Bao Hong speaks quietly and with kindness, but not confidence. He has unkempt hair and a sincere-looking face that seems as if it should smile more than it does. He continues, We would love to come back here to all live together. We plan to, but it's not easy. There is no work here. Those guys working construction outside, they won't be here in a couple of weeks. They'll all go to other cities to find work too. He hesitates, as if considering his options. We also might move to Bangdong to take care of my wife's parents. We could grow better tea there and probably do pretty well. He pauses again. But it's not home. That night, we sit in darkness, except for a single light bulb and the firelight. There's a long pause before Bao Hong continues. Things aren't easy, but at least it's not like when I was little. Bao Hong was born in 1988, the auspicious year of the dragon, and grew up when the effects of China's reform and opening were still slow to reach far-flung rural Yunnan. All we had was corn to eat, and even that we had to share with the animals, he told me. Many times, we just went hungry. I glance at Bao Hong's father. His knowing eyes remain silent as he puffs his handmade bamboo pipe. Things are not easy here, Bao Hong concludes, but they are sure better than they used to be. Some places like Jiangjiapu have little going for them. No cash crop, no economics, and no capital other than what villagers bring back with them, bill by bill year by year. Revitalization is labor-intensive and slow, and while Bangdong seems to be doing well, it also faces its own challenges. The risk of dropping tea prices remains a stark reality. At the 19th Party Congress last fall, China officially shifted the focus of its development strategy from high-speed growth to better quality life, in part by addressing unequal development. Although some still see places like Bangdong and Jiangjiapu as luohou, or backward, for many people in the countryside, a better quality life revolves around their community at home. 
That means conditions are ripening for rural revitalization, both from the top down and the bottom up. More places like Jiangjiapu and Bangdong will be slowly shifting along the development spectrum toward, quote, strong agriculture, a beautiful countryside, and well-off farmers. Back in Bangdong, as the moon begins to rise over Li Rugui's pig slaughtering feast, mothers strap their sleeping children to their backs and pack them home. Fourteen people squeeze around a table to scoop pickled vegetables. Double that number crowd around as spectators, providing commentary. Old classmates and their middle school teacher toast one another with rounds of baijiu. Others squat around the fire, munching on sunflower seeds. I can understand the drive to seek opportunity on the other side of the country or even the world. But there truly is no place like home. I understand the importance of being known in a community and the value of having a village by which to raise a child. And I'm no longer curious that the migrant workers are missing from this feast. I'm glad.